Well, by no means are Christians perfect people. We believe, as God has revealed in the Bible, that we, in fact, are sinful people. And though we have trusted in Jesus for salvation, we are nevertheless still sinners. One area where we struggle concerns the relationship between love and truth. The relationship between love and truth. And uh, I'm sure even if you're not a Christian, you identify with this relationship, right? This interesting relationship between love and truth. And if you can recall something that you have so dearly loved, you know, you really want to talk about it. And sometimes you press it upon people to the degree that, you know, you're a bit insensitive. You lack sensitivity to the people that we're speaking to. So sometimes we can be so truth-focused to the neglect of love, which of course leads to championing a truth in a harsh way or in an insensitive way. Other times we love, or sorry, our love is focused uh, on something to the neglect of truth. This is love without boundaries, which actually ends up being no love at all. Love without boundaries ends up being no love at all. You know what I mean? I mean, shouldn't Melanie, my wife, want me to love with boundaries and within the proper boundaries? If I don't love within the proper boundaries of marriage, take romantic love, for, for example, then you can imagine all of a sudden just love ceases to become love. I'm loving unwisely. I'm loving with a lack of discernment. No, love is good, but within its boundaries. The Bible actually addresses both of these errors. And our passage today warns and addresses a church that is struggling to love in truth. So what they need to hear is they need to understand what it looks like to love in wisdom, to love with discernment. Today we begin uh, our series to the book of 2 John. I invite you to go ahead and turn there with me right now. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you can go to Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and then just flip a few few pages to the left, and there you'll get to 2 John. Um, and we begin a new series here. And the church of the early centuries, you know, the reason why it's called 2 John, the church of the early centuries uh, attributed this letter, and 1 John and 3 John, to, the, to John the disciple. And he also had written John the Gospel, John, uh, the Gospel of John, and then also the book of Revelation. And many think that he wrote this letter in the late 90s AD, instructing the church here to guard against false teachers and false teaching. So that's why he's uh, writing this letter, and we're going to go through this, and it becomes very evident that this is the case. Look there, Second John. I'll go ahead and read the whole entire letter, even though today we're going to focus on the first three verses. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment. Just as you have heard from the beginning, 
so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. This is a pretty typical letter, a first century letter in terms of its format. You have a greeting, you got the body, you have a conclusion. And John here refers to himself as the elder or the pastor. Those two words are interchangeable, elder, pastor. And then he writes to the elect lady and her children. Now many people come up with all sorts of guesses as to whether or not this elect lady and her children is an individual and then her children. Um, But none of those guesses are convincing. It's best to take this reference to the actual church. He writes, after all, as an elder of a church to another church. Right? He's, he's clear. He's stating his position here. And then when he signs off at the end, look there at the very end, uh, verse 13, he speaks on behalf of the church. Right? The children of your elect sister greet you. Well, if this was an individual, this would be a little bit strange, saying, to the elect, el- uh, to the elect lady and her children. And then at the end, he says, the children over here say Hello? Why wouldn't he say the elect lady, also your sister, says hello? So it seems to be like he's writing to the church and not an individual. And he's telling them, explaining to the church how to love wisely. This is point number one, the need for wise love. The need for wise love. Though we don't have too much information as to who he was writing to, it seems really clear why he had to write this letter in the first place. Look there at verse 7. And just go ahead and skim along that verse there. Uh, those verses down, John reminds him about the false teachers who were denying that the Son of God had actually come in the flesh. That he actually appeared in the flesh. And there is much reason to think that the errors addressed here are the same errors addressed in 1 John. The letter of 1 John, the letter right to your left. Um, it's interesting, some people even say that uh, all these letters were written together and then delivered to the same community at the same time. So you have 1 John kind of addressing things holistically. You have 2 John addressing what it looks like for uh, the congregation to interact with these false teachers. Right? 1 John shows the false teachers leave the church. 2 John, uh, some people think that John wrote this letter to the people teaching them to interact with the false teachers or how to interact with the church and the false teachers. And then 3 John, he addressed a particular pastoral situation. Um, we're not entirely sure if that's the case. It definitely simplifies things. Uh, but the errors seem to be the same here as in 1 John. Some from within the church were teaching, contrary to the truth, that Jesus was not the God-man. That's what some of the false teachers were saying. They were saying Jesus was not the God-man. Instead, they would have said something like, Jesus became God. He became God, and he did so when the Spirit descended upon him at his baptism. And at that point in time, maybe God adopted Jesus. He became more God. And then eventually, before Christ's crucifixion, the Spirit went up from Jesus back into heaven. 
And the reason why they went about uh, trying to explain the incarnation in this way was because really the incarnation didn't make sense to the culture. It didn't make sense to the culture, and so they changed the doctrine. The culture didn't have room for the divine becoming man, come in the flesh, the son of God. Because they said that the stuff of the world, like you and me, the stuff, our flesh was bad, but the spiritual stuff was good. So if the spiritual stuff is good, then how exactly can the spiritual stuff become the bad stuff? They didn't really understand this. And that teaching that the stuff of the flesh, the stuff of the earth is bad, is just simply not true according to the Bible. So the incarnation was unattractive, and so they were having nothing to do with this. They also said that salvation comes through a special knowledge given only to some people. And these false teachers came to be known as the Gnostics. If you're taking notes and you want to maybe look that up a little bit later, you can spell it as in G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S, Gnostics. John's indictment on the false teachers is found in 2 John, verse 9. Go ahead and look there. It says that they, John describes them as those who go ahead. Right? These are people who are going beyond what God had said. They do not abide in the teaching of Christ. He said they're going beyond. But it wasn't only the false teachings that were reaching the church. The false teachers were too. As I mentioned earlier, actually go ahead and flip over to 1 John chapter 2 and you can see there he talks about many of the same themes. Look there in 2.18. He says, Their children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Look at verse 19. They went out from us. So they were false teachers who apparently wanted nothing else to do with, with the true doctrine. And so they left. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For, here's the reason, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out. Then it may become plain that they are all not of us. He goes on to say, but you guys, you guys have the Spirit of God living in you. So that there is an example of how the false teachers were amongst them. You know, the church is somewhat new. And so naturally they're trying, to, the, the false teachers are growing up with the true believers. And they are leaving, they're departing from true doctrine. Look there, 2 John 2.10. And John gives them instructions about how to interact with these false teachers. He says there, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... He's referring back to the previous verse that Jesus Christ came to flesh, or verse 7. He says, Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So you can imagine what's going on. You have the false teachers evangelizing for a false Christ, sharing a false gospel, but they're asking for hospitality from the true church. Uh, back then, you know, no one really wanted to stay at an inn or hotel. They were, a, they were nasty places. The innkeepers were known to have shady characters uh, or to be shady character, characters. And so, you know, we'd much rather stay at a family's house. And so it seems like these false teachers are wanting to take advantage of the Christians and, and uh, have them support them. But John, res John responds, do not receive them into your house or give them any greeting. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Don't let non-Christians in your house and don't even say hello? 
So some of you guys, maybe with sensitive consciences, you're wondering, like, gosh, am I partaking in wicked works by saying hello to false teachers? Or saying hello to people who don't believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ? Well, no, that's not what he's saying. That is not what he's saying. So I have no problem saying hello to someone who denies the divinity of Jesus Christ. Like a Jehovah's Witness, like a Mormon, like my Muslim friends. I got no problem saying hello to them. I also have no problem inviting them into my house. So I have shared a number of meals with Muslims and people who deny the divinity of Jesus Christ. Now, on top of that, though, I think that God is pleased when Christians serve others made in his image. So regardless of what somebody believes, they are still made in God's image, which means that we as Christians ought to be protecting them, helping them, and loving them, regardless if they reject Jesus or not. In Scripture, there are plenty of examples where Christians are helping non-Christians and even commanded to do so. And so, working with non-Christians, they're, they're, you know, they, helping non-Christians, there's no indication in Scripture that when a Christian does these things that they are in sin. In fact, we have every reason to think that God is pleased. A great verse that comes to mind is Jeremiah 29, verse 6, where the nation of Israel is in exile under Babylon, a pagan empire, and God commands them to, quote, seek the welfare of the city and pray for it. But yet they oppose God, so there's, but yet they're still encouraged to seek the welfare of the city. In the New Testament, for example, you know, Jesus has no problem dining with sinners, even though they did not accept him. Jesus commands us to give to those in need, and his commandment is not qualified by whether or not a person is a Christian. So John is not giving a blanket statement to never help and to never say hello to a non-Christian. But what this passage calls us to do is to love wisely and love discerningly. So when John says, don't receive them into your house or even greet them, he's saying, don't extend hospitality, don't receive them in such a way as to encourage slash affirm them in their error. Don't encourage them, don't receive them in such a way as to encourage them and affirm them in their error. Right, and then we got the greeting. You know, the Christians at the time they had a, a, a greeting that resembled a command of Jesus Christ, uh, that that uh, showed filial family love. You know, greet the brothers with a kiss, greet the brothers in fellowship. He's saying, no, don't greet them in that way, in the fellowship way. Remember, he's already written, um, most likely, the letter of First John. Right, they receive it. He already has a relationship with them. And so he's encouraging them how to guard themselves against false teachers. John's point is an obvious one. You can't greet someone as a Christian if they don't believe in the biblical Jesus. And so he says, look, brothers and sisters, love wisely and love discerningly. Love them in a way that shows that they need the truth. As opposed to in a way that assumes they already have it. This is fitting for us today, isn't it? We too, at times, can lack discernment and lack wisdom. Every Christian needs to add wisdom and discernment to Christian love in order to love rightly. So how do we love and serve our friends who deny who Jesus is? You know, I assume you all have Muslim friends and Jehovah's Witnesses friends and Mormon friends. You know, we are to love them. But not in a way that affirms their error. And contrary to the atmosphere of this culture, 
We can still love our neighbors while disagreeing with their beliefs. We can still love our neighbors while disagreeing with their beliefs. I mean, one of, our, one of my neighbors denies the deity of Jesus Christ. And yet, I'm regularly seeking how to, act, how to encourage him and how to love him. So I'm asking him when I see him outside working on his truck, I ask him, you know, how's business going? Because I'm genuinely interested. You know, and when his kids come over to my house, I want to protect his children. Even though he denies the divinity of Jesus, you know, when it's late at night, like last night, I want to make sure that his children get home safely. And so I encouraged, uh, you know, our oldest son to go and escort the five-year-old daughter back home when it was nighttime. We're going to feed them when we're over, when they're over. And I'm going to do this all while making clear to this brother, or sorry, not a brother, but this person, uh, that he is not a brother in Christ because he denies the divinity of Jesus Christ. And he's happy to have that conversation. We're happy to disagree. And he doesn't take offense at it because he knows that I'm seeking his best interest. And I know that uh, he is doing the same for me. So we can still love our neighbors while disagreeing with their beliefs. He knows that. I know that. We're on the same page. So please do not hear me say that just because someone does not believe in what you believe in, Christian, that you therefore are not to love them. I mean, that's, that was contrary to the very gospel, doesn't it? These people who reject Jesus, and yet Jesus says, let me try and show you the way and the truth. He himself is the truth, and he comes to a, a people who have rejected him and refuse to believe in him. So we want to walk in, in Jesus' footsteps here. We need to love wisely. Well, how exactly are Christians to do this? This brings us to point number two. We are to love in truth. We are to love in truth. Again, John is very much about love and truth. In the first three verses, he mentions the word truth there four times. Right? Because he wants them to not only love, but to love in the atmosphere or the sphere of truth. Or he wants... Their love to be grounded in the truth. And in this point, we're going to look at three ways that we can better love in truth. <clears throat> three ways that we can better love in truth. First, by knowing the truth and calling people to believe in it. By knowing the truth and then calling people to believe in, in it. In verse 1, John gives a clear, very clear reminder... That Christian love is to be grounded in truth. He says, the elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. So right there he's saying, look, this is the boundaries that we are to love another person who claims to be a Christian. It is in truth. Uh, you know, he could have stopped right there. He could have said, whom we love, period. But he wants them to understand this is love based in truth. This is the very definition of Christian love. And then he gets expansive on them. It says, not only I, guys, but he says, all who know the truth. And so then all of a sudden, this one little church that he's writing to is reminded, oh, we are to love in the truth. And look, all the other Christians are doing the exact same thing. This verse functions as really a preface to the letter, an introduction uh, that he uses, which he then goes, he returns to the themes later on in the verse. He says, I love you, we all love you, in truth. This is actually kind of a glance over to the false teachers. The false teachers there in verse 10, they come to the church with a very different gospel, asking for hospitality. And so John moves towards the truth 
reminding them of his love for them in truth. You know, our love, our shared love as Christians is based in a shared truth, he says. A known truth. Something that the false teachers did not want to share with the church. And so John reminds them the only way you can be partnered with people in the faith is if they are partnered in the faith. And the obvious question is, what is the truth they shared and the truth that is known amongst all of the Christians? Without doubt, John's immediate concern centers on the fact that Christ has indeed come in the flesh. Again, just as 2.7 says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. And then he also is really clear there in the beginning in verse 3. You, you see that there? It says, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son. It's really clear here who this Jesus is. The Father's Son who has come in the flesh. We can also turn to 1 John 4.10 to see what exactly this Jesus did. Look over there. I think it's a very good summary of the significance of Christ coming in the flesh. He says there, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see there what's on John's mind right there? It isn't just living a better life, but yet it is getting rid of our sins. All because of the love of God. Christian, you know, we are to be ready to love our neighbors who disagree with us. And if we are to be ready to love our neighbors who disagree with us, we need to be able to love them in truth. Love them in truth. Which means, if we are ever in the situation that this church was in, where people are coming to them, false teachers are coming to them for support and hospitality, we need to be able to, to state the truths of Christianity that Christianity rests on, that the Bible presents. So for you, basic question. I wonder if you are able to present the basic and fundamental truths of Christianity. So, for example, the reason why it is significant that Jesus had to come in the flesh. I mean, where would you go to in the Bible to, to further explain that? If someone's coming to you with false teaching, denying the divinity of Jesus Christ, or denying maybe his humanity, where would you go? This is what John says is the known truth for Christians, right? And I pray that you all are not assuming the truth. Don Carson, he writes that the first generation believes the truth. Oftentimes, the second generation assumes the truth. And unfortunately, the third generation loses the truth. So you have to ask the question, if you can't define the significance for why Jesus had to come in the flesh, then perhaps you have assumed it for far too long. We need to be ready to share the truth, the significance of why Christ came in the flesh. And this is what it is. It is, you know, in terms of the gospel, we can go back to God, right? God created all things. He created man to be in a relationship with him. But man had rebelled in sin. They had rejected God's good authority over them. We have rejected God's good authority over our lives. 
and we have earned for ourselves just condemnation, God's judgment. And that's exactly what Adam did in the garden. He basically said, I don't really care what you say, God. And in so doing, he rebelled against the king and earned for himself condemnation. And uh, turn over to Romans chapter 5. Again, if you're new to the Bible, you just turn left or ask your neighbor and uh, they can help you get to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5. This is my go-to passage. You know, if I'm talking about why Christ had to come in the flesh... Well, it goes back to Adam, doesn't it? Romans 5, verse 12 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, the one man, the first man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay, so that's the bad news, right? Adam and Eve, Adam sins, and therefore sin and death enters into the world. The question then is, well, how are we going to undo what Adam did? He earns for us our, our he earns for us just condemnation. He messes up our relationship with God. You know, he 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 denies God. He refuses to live underneath His rule. He then messes up the relationship between him and other human beings, as in Eve. And then even the relationship to the ground is messed up, as the ground is cursed, and uh, it's difficult in terms of work from then on, all because of sin. And we inherit the sinful nature. But not only do we inherit the sinful nature, we actually choose to sin. We want to sin. And so if you have done anything wrong in your life, you too know the position that Adam was in. The question then, of course, is if we have separated ourselves from God and earned condemnation under him, how do I get back into relationship with my maker? Enter in Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 5 here, who is contrasted with the first man, is the true Adam, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who undoes everything that Adam did. And so, you know, we can explain to people, look, you're either under Adam or you are under Jesus Christ. You are either owned by sin and a slave to sin, or you are freed from your sin. Look there at verse 15. But, here's the contrast, but the free gift, he's talking about salvation, is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, basically saying that was bad, for the judgment following the trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought, uh, brought justification, right standing with God, righteousness, Verse 17, for if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
It's a long passage, but the, the sum of it is, look, you are either in Adam, in sin, or you are in Jesus Christ. Who will you choose? Who will be your head, your federal head, as it is called? Will it be Adam? Who got us in the mess that we are in in the first place, and we are just following in our footsteps and choosing to walk in his ways? Or will it be the God-man? who reigns over all and brings to everyone who repents and believes the free gift of salvation through the shedding of his blood on the cross on which he bears all the wrath that man deserved. All the sin. He was made to be sin so that we would become the righteousness of God. There's a significance, isn't it? We know that trespass, sin, and death came into the world through one man, but through Christ, Righteousness comes to sinners who turn from their sin and believe. Now, friends, God calls us to take the truth of the gospel and share it, even with those who disagree with us. And it doesn't need to be awkward. You know, some of us, you know, in terms of talking about the truth, we might be thinking, oh, this is going to be really awkward talking to my friends. I've known him for 20 years. I've never mentioned anything about Jesus. And it's just going to be awkward. You could just, have you ever thought about just politely and uh, saying politely and kindly, oh yes, I'd love to know what you think. And you, can, and you can listen patiently, you can listen lovingly, and then you can say after they're done and just be quiet, after you've been quiet and just heard what they have had to say, then you can say, now let me tell you who Jesus is according to Scripture. That's not awkward at all. After all, they themselves are telling you what they believe. And so naturally, they're going to expect you to tell them what you believe. But for us, even to get there and begin to do this, well, we simply need to know the truth, don't we? You know, friends, some Christians are embarrassed about Jesus Christ. Maybe that's you. You too might think that sharing the truth of the gospel does not feel loving because, you know, we've got to talk about sin, we've got to talk about hell, we've got to talk about judgment. And we might say, you know, can't we just love them in physical needs and things like that and maybe they'll come to know Jesus Christ? Well, the simple answer of that is no. The gospel requires words to share. Besides that, true love aims not just to help people in this life, but to help people in the eternal life. If we possess the words of eternal life and then choose to shut ourselves up, isn't that an act of hatred? towards our neighbors if the gospel is really true? You know, what else is worse, Christian? You know, non-Christians recognize this. They know, they recognize that, that if we believe what the gospel says, then to shut ourselves up is hatred towards them. Atheists, for example, understand this. Listen to what one famous atheist said. He just straight up says, I don't respect people who don't proselytize, who don't share their faith. If you believe that there is a heaven or hell and that people could be going to hell and forfeiting eternal life, but you don't think it's worth telling them this because it makes things socially awkward? How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? And he goes on and it's just so clear to him, this person who does not believe in God, he said, if I believed without a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a point where I go on and tackle you. 
Why? It's because sharing the gospel of salvation is more important than being courteous and polite at that point in time. Friends, know the gospel and love others by calling them to believe in it. That was the first sub-point there. How can we love in truth? First, by knowing the truth and calling to believe in it. Second, is by calling Christians to live in it. And everyone, calling everyone to submit to it. It is by calling Christians to live in the truth and calling everyone to submit to the truth. In verse 2, John gives reasons for why he and all the other Christians, all the other churches, love this church in truth. He says there it is because it, that is the truth, abides in us. This abiding language can also be spoken of as, in the words of remaining or existing. It speaks of a personal, intimate relationship between us and the one who is abiding. And John speaks of this language. He uses this language often, and really he's just using Jesus' language. Um, So in John 15, go ahead and turn there. There's this most famous passage where Jesus uses this language a number of times. I'll just show you. He says there in 15 verse 1. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the world, the word that I have spoken to you. And then look here, he says, abide in me and I in you. Abide in me and I in you. There's a, a mutual abiding, a mutual remaining here. This speaks of an intimate and ongoing relationship. Even though Jesus knows that he would physically not be present with his people. Later on in the afternoon, just read 14, 15, and 16, and you'll hear this abiding language more and more. The question then is, how exactly is he going to abide in us? In John 14, 17, Jesus says, I am going to give you the spirit of truth. And he uses abiding language. He says the spirit is going to dwell in you and be with you. And then there's a number of other ways in which he uses this abiding language, or or, uh, he explains what the abiding is. He says right there, we already saw that the spirit of truth abides in people. He says the spirit will abide in here. And then in 2 John, as we're looking at today, he says the truth abides. It's the same thing, same concept. It's interesting, some people think, wonder what this language speaks of. And we have a par- something of a parallel in our own experience, no matter if you're a Christian or not. We have something of what it looks like to abide or remain. Um, and I think the example I'm going to share is evidence that we are actually spiritually, we are spiritual people. It's not just the stuff of the flesh uh, that evolutionists might teach. But here's the example. Imagine losing a dear, dear loved one. So three years ago, my mother passed away, a little bit over three years ago. And, you know, imagine if you've lost a loved one, as I have with my own mother. What do people do to keep the memory alive of the deceased. Some people would even say, what do people do to keep their spirit alive? Don't we cherish their words? Maybe cherish their last words? Don't we adopt their desires and purposes as our own? 
Don't we live in the, in the ways in which they wanted us to live and love in the same ways that they wanted us to love? And as we do these things, in many senses, the person, the deceased, they remain with us. I'm not talking about, you know, physically they remain with us or ontologically or their being remains with us. I'm just talking about, you know, their memory, what they stood for remains with us. And in some sense, they abide with us. Now, I'm not saying that we have a relationship with the dead, an ongoing relationship with the dead. The analogy, you know, we don't press it too far. But we see the similarities, don't we? Jesus did die, but the Bible teaches that he got up again. But he physically, nevertheless, is gone from us. The Bible teaches that he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. But while he is physically gone, we still have his presence. And he desires that we live in him, that we abide in him, we remain in him. And Jesus says we are abiding in him as we possess his spirit. We embrace his laws. We adopt his purposes and his desires and his will. And then as also as we love his people. So this all speaks about this God abiding in us and we abiding in him. speaks about the reality that we live in that Christ is Lord. So you see why the church needed reminding here. The false teachers came and preached a different Christ. They preached a different gospel. And they were not living in the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord. They were not abiding in Christ. They didn't care about loving his people or living according to his word. So thinking back to honoring the deceased one. If someone wanted to join me in honoring my mother's memory, or you know, if you're thinking about your grandma, neighbor, a loved one, a guardian... Isn't it an expectation, a requirement, that they understand rightly and accurately who the deceased is in order to honor that person? Because it is when you, when that person understands, let's say, my mother rightly, accurately, that they represent her and truly honor her. If they came in spitting lies about your deceased one that they know is a lie then you would say, you know, don't you dare talk about my mom like that, right? It's funny how we forget that Jesus was a real person, isn't it? I mean, frankly, he's a person that deserves far more honor and praise and glory than your very own parents or than any other person who lived on the face of the planet and who will ever live. But despite the fact that he is the Lord, we are slow oftentimes to say, don't talk about my Savior like that, the God of the universe like that. These folks who came knocking on the church's door, it seems they had big ideas, big opinions about the Savior, at worst spitting lies about the Savior. But Jesus is not someone that people just wax eloquent about. When it talks about, when we talk about a truth to be believed and a truth to be laid out, a truth that is known, we speak about truth about a person to be worshipped. And his truth is to be obeyed and submitted to. So how do we love people in truth? We call people to submit their entire lives to the truth, not just to pontificate about it. Christian truth, once again, is not just a truth to be held or subscribed to. Christian truth is about a person to be worshipped. And part of calling people to submit their lives to him and to live by his truth involves telling people about the seriousness of rejecting the Lord. In John 15, if you have your finger still there, or if not, you can go back. Here, John is very clear about what happens 
when you reject this Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll start there in 15, verse 4. This is what it says. Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, now here's this, this is serious here. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into a fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove Prove, prove to me be my disciples. You know, once again, the reason why there is such a, a clear consequence for those who reject Jesus is it's not just reject, rejecting, uh, you know, some made up truth as if, you know, you're choosing not to follow a fairy tale. This is choosing to know and recognize, yes, okay, this is the Lord, the creator of the universe, and saying, I don't really care what you say. And so clearly, there is and ought to be a serious result from this act. You know, if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a Christian, please don't think that Christian truth is something that a bunch of people just get around and they decide to agree upon and we create this stuff. No, Christ the person actually lived, actually died, and actually rose from the dead. And in God sending His Son to die on the cross for sins, it is God extending his love and his grace and his mercy to you. So to say, nah, you know what, I don't really think so, is to offend him. And the result of that is judgment. And why is it such an offense? It's because you, we take everything, and I say this having been there myself, we take everything that God has given us for granted, and we use God to glorify ourselves. We take the honor and the glory that he deserves and we give it to ourselves. So this is taking the life and breath you have and using it for your glory. This is taking the opportunities you have and using it to further your own desires. It's taking your Christian friends and using it to fulfill yourselves as opposed to seeing them as a way in which to understand the truth that God has revealed in Jesus Christ. So in doing all these things, we say, we don't really care. Instead, we're going to use these things for our own glory. This is why Christians call non-Christians to repent and believe. And why I stand here today calling you to turn from your sins and to believe on Jesus Christ, who is the Lord. Remember God the Father, because he loves sinners, extends his hand of love and grace and mercy to those who don't deserve it. Repent of your sins. And know the forgiveness that is offered in Jesus Christ. This is the hope we have for those who repent and believe. And this brings us to the third way. The third way that we can live in truth. Or sorry, love in truth. It is by calling people to hope in it. John helpfully points us to the end of ages here in 2 John verse 3. Look there. He says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father 
and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. You see that will be with us. This will be with us follows right on the heels of the fact that the truth will be with us. So the way in which God's truth works its way out is through grace, mercy, and peace. Here he speaks of the truth that lasts. It's most likely a reference to the spirit of Christ that lasts. As Christ himself promised to be with us until the very end of the age. This is hope. Christ promises his presence to his people who love him and honor him by walking continually in his truth. And John, he's very glad. Like look there in verse 4. He's really glad to see people walking in truth. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in truth. Just as we were commanded by the Father. He's encouraged to see people walking in truth and loving wisely and loving in the truth. It is in Jesus Christ that grace, mercy, and peace can be found. You know, peace, for example, there he mentions that. Peace speaks of the character of salvation through Christ's blood. Where once we were hostile to God, now there is peace in Jesus Christ. Then he mentions, you know, working backwards, he mentions mercy. And this speaks of our need for it. For God to pardon us and to relieve us from the punishment that we rightly deserve. And then, of course, there is grace, which is God's free provision of salvation in Jesus Christ. All that is found in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And once you start messing with the character of Christ, you soon begin to lose all the benefits that come through him. As he alone is the one to undo what Adam did. He alone is the God-man whom God had sent to die on the cross, to live a righteous life, to live a life that we couldn't, to die a death we should have, in order that those who believe in him would have salvation. So in conclusion, Christian, how is your love going? Are you loving others by caring not only for their bodies, which is a great and wonderful thing to do, but most importantly for their souls? Here we are reminded to love in truth, in the truths of the gospel, by making sure we know the truth and calling everyone to believe in it. We love in truth by calling Christians to live in it and calling everyone to submit to it. And then number three, we love in truth by calling everyone to hope in it. So when you get that knock on the door by those people who might want to share with you what they think the Bible teaches... Here we have a wonderful opportunity to share the true love of Jesus Christ with them. And we can begin to love in truth. It is true, we are not to love them in a way in which we affirm and encourage their error. But we can nevertheless love them in ways, first and foremost, by sharing with them the true truths of Jesus Christ. But then also, caring for their bodies. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do thank you for Jesus Christ and his example. We, we know that he did not soft-pedal the truth, as is very clear from your word. But we know that he did not soft-pedal love. And in fact, he left his place of honor and glory that he rightly deserved. 
as he deserved all the worship of every created thing in the universe as the Son of God. And still, he took on flesh and became man in order that he might identify with those he saves. In order that we, according to the book of Hebrews, might have a faithful high priest, one with whom, one whom one who understands the plight of his people and identifies, and then not only that, but intercedes for those he saves to the Father. Lord, we thank you that that is made possible in the Incarnation, which is a marvelous picture of your great love for sinners. Father, we might wrestle to ground our love in truth, but Father, we pray that we would follow in the footsteps of Jesus and do the exact same thing he did, which is call people to repent and believe, but at the same time, love their bodies as well. But most importantly, love their eternal souls. We pray, Lord, that by your spirit, you would help us do these things to the praise of your glorious grace. And that we as a church would be solid and that we would understand what the truth is. And from those things, learn to love you and love others better. In your name we pray. Amen.